want to say thanks to all those that are joining us from the, uh, the Alliance community and all the, the watchers out there in the industry. We have a, an exciting virtual roundtable discussion. I personally am real jazzed up about getting to host. I've had an opportunity to meet each of these panelists over the course of this year in the course of our respective businesses, and it's, uh, it's really been exciting to watch each of the opportunities they've been pursuing kind of evolve over the last 12 months. So looking forward for them to share their stories and their perspectives on financing innovation for the home building industry. Just a quick backdrop on the Alliance and our vision, you know, we look towards attainable housing for all, and we use the economics of the missing middle to drive the conversation with the production home builders and our entire community and construction ecosystem from dirt to dweller. How we do that and what we look for, we envision a thriving industry with innovative organizations, business models, and leaders. We look for, we believe new housing is always delivered efficiently and to the highest standards of quality, performance, and value. And we want to make sure that housing is available and affordable for all segments of the population. And how we engage our community, we look for change makers. We bring the best and brightest together again across the delivery chain. We are production builder focused and we collective, we, we source intelligence across our community to bring crowd accelerated innovation into the mix. So why we're here today, I think everyone's kind of seen this quote before from Albert Einstein and you know, that for our industry, it certainly, certainly applies. And, you know, doing things differently requires two things in my mind. It requires grit and cash. So today we're going to have the opportunity to talk to a few individuals that have helped to put together some of the most innovative ideas in our industry. Just quickly, again, want to thank um, the three panelists that will be participating today. And I'm going to take a second here to introduce each of them and then give them an opportunity to share their story with you. First off, we have the deal maker, Margaret Whalen, founder and CEO of Whalen Advisory. So Margaret launched, Margaret launched her firm in 2014 to provide strategic and financial counsel to leaders of both public and private companies in the U.S. and Canada. She is a seasoned executive and industry expert with a deep knowledge of industry drivers, players, valuation, and financing alternatives. She currently serves on the boards of a number of companies, including Madame Homes, John Burns Real Estate Consulting, and our group, the Housing Innovation Alliance, where she represents the financial community and other innovation enablers who help builders and developers better understand the market and deliver the better home. Thanks for joining us, Margaret. Next up, we have Chris Langford, the investor. So Chris is a, a partner at Idea Fund Partners, one of the most active early stage investors in the Southeast. Chris has, a fo has focused the bulk of his career on the study of, of the home and its ancillary industries. Prior to Idea Fund, Chris was the founder and managing director of Lowe's Ventures, where he led strategy, sourcing, and management for the Fortune 50 Corporate Venture Fund. He is incredibly passionate about housing affordability, structural barriers to home ownership, and enabling a simpler and more prosperous home ownership model. Thanks for joining us, Chris. And next up, we have Alan Lang. Alan is the CEO of RIA. RIA Comfort Solutions. So Alan stepped in as CEO of RIA in 2019 to transform how we think about delivering comfort with the first fully integrated HVAC solution for the home building industry. He spent the last 35 years in the construction and residential home building industry in various senior management and executive roles, including EVP of Home Building Operations for Taylor Morrison, CEO of Orleans Homes, and National VP of Operations for Pulte. Alan currently serves on the North American Board of Rockwell International, a global insulation manufacturer based in Denmark. And I uh, just want to say thanks for having, or thanks for joining us, Alan. And before we get started, just want to say thank you to all of our, our partners. 
the partner sponsorship to make this uh, make this programming possible throughout the course of the year. So thank you to everyone that's been involved in underwriting these initiatives. And to talk about today's agenda, so what we're going to do is going to provide snapshots. So again, sharing stories and perspectives from each of our speakers. We're going to roll into a panel uh, Q&A session that we'll lead with feedback from our audience, and then we'll have an open discussion amongst the group. So if you want to participate, you know, Dennis is going to facilitate the conversation today and certainly the, um, the panel discussion. Um, but at any time, if you have a question uh, for any of our speakers, please feel free to use the chat function um, for Zoom. Type your question in. I'm going to be monitoring those on our end. And then when we get to this group discussion at the end, we will facilitate those. And if there's any questions that come up that we don't have time to get to, we'll send those to our panelists and we'll make sure that we get them off to you as follow-up to today's event. All right. Thank you, Betsy. Okay. Now, first section, we'll get into the expert snapshots, and we're going to start with Margaret's section here. So, Margaret, I'll, I'll drive from Pittsburgh if you just want kick things off to your side and we'll get moving. Thank you, Dennis. That'd be great. And good afternoon, everyone. Dennis, I don't know if you're hearing it, but there's a lot of background noise coming from somewhere. Uh, we just muted. We were shuffling the uh, speaker mute. So that was one of the speakers. So we should be good now. <laughs> Thank you. It sounded like you're on a construction site, Betsy. Okay. So. <laughs> well, you know, we try. <laughs> yeah, keep it on that. Hello, everyone, and thank you for uh, allowing me to participate in the webinar this afternoon. I've been involved with the Housing Innovation Alliance for the last couple of years, basically, since it was formed. And I'm delighted to be included because I am also very passionate about the opportunity for innovation and creating more affordable housing choices all around the country. And as Dana said, I'm an investment banker. I've been based in New York City, working on Wall Street for about 25 years with home building and construction companies. I started a boutique advisory firm about five years ago because I wanted to be able to offer a higher level of service to a smaller group of clients. And that has worked out very well. We've worked with several of the up and coming um, construction companies and home builders around the country, which I'll talk about in a second. So the purpose of my contribution this afternoon is to describe where the financing is actually coming from for innovation today. And I think it's already established that there are a lot of trends leading to disruption, whether it's the lack of availability of labor, less availability of skilled labor, more volatility and rising input costs, um, shifts in California already around the need for zero net energy ready homes that are going to be more expensive. So government response driving more expensive inputs and overall the need for technology that's emerging is perceived to be innovative here in the US. But of course, if you go to Europe or to Asia, what you find is that most of what we're talking about is disruptive is actually very well established and has been received well for decades. And so whereas we believe that, the, um, that we're making a lot of changes here in the US, the reality is that it's been proven overseas and therefore I think that the adoption rates will be higher and faster for a lot of the new entrants that are um, that are coming to the market so the theme of my panel for the next 10 minutes is show me the money and I want to talk a little bit about the trends in the capital where it's coming from why and what I think is going to happen going forward it's hard to have a conversation about innovation in the construction industry without a reference to the McKinsey report. So let me get that out of the way with this slide, the investment versus evolution. I really think of it on a spectrum, which is that the more labor 
that you're taking out of the process, the more expensive it is to, gonna, to get a factory up and running. So for example, if you're building 3D modular homes that are gonna be picked up and installed with a crane like mobile homes or manufactured homes, that's gonna be a very expensive undertaking from a factory perspective. It might cost you 50, 60 million dollars. If you're gonna do a turnkey framing solution like in Tecra or on the West Coast or ICG on the East Coast, that might cost you about 20, 25 million dollars. And then if you're gonna do something that's just labor oriented, of course the capital investment upfront is going to be lower, but the more labor, the more permanent labor you take out of the process, the better it's going to be in terms of the long-term growth and attainable, in the availability of attainable and less expensive housing. In terms of the trends that are coming, you can see a lot of different charts around the capital coming in. I try to focus specifically on construction technology, and often you need a glossary to describe some of these terms, but in terms of contech versus prop tech, property technology, I think about it more in terms of how the consumer is interacting with the business, whether it's um, uh, Porch.com or some of these companies that are facilitating communication between the home builder and the customer, contact is how the houses are built. And of course, a lot of consumers complain that the house that's available for them to buy today is like a Blackberry when they want to buy the iPhone 10. And it's not just that the product is a little bit stale, but also the process in terms of how we build it. But the good news and the opportunity is when you look at this chart that there's been a lot of investment over the last decade. It really peaked in 2018 with the investment in Katera and that the momentum continues. In fact, there's been about $5 billion invested over in over 500 deals in the last couple of years and a billion of that was in 2018 and that was about a 30 percent growth rate so the funding is picking up and um what you'll see on the next page it's not surprising that so much of this is in california because there's a lot of uh, homeowners in california a lot of people living there the population is greater than the other, any other state in the country but there's also a lot of venture capital money and it's the venture capital investors that are coming into these small startup companies so whereas there is venture capital money and, and deals are investing in around the country most of it is out on the west coast in terms of what they're investing in, I like to think of it as three buckets. The first is easy to understand, uh, off-site solutions, construction technology, what Katera is talking about doing, what Integra is doing. Katera is the only unicorn in that space. So far, that's a, a unicorn is a company that's valued at over a billion dollars. Um, there's also Procore as a unicorn in the software space. So the software is just designed to facilitate communication, typically cloud-based, between all of the different folks that are building the home. And then the third one is artificial intelligence, which is also going to be very meaningful in terms of facilitating better communication and uh, reducing time and, and expense in the job sites. In terms of the, um, the deals by funding stage, one of the things that's very encouraging is that so many of the investments that are being made are either seed funding or what we call angel investing or Series A. So this means that these companies are very small, they're just getting started. In fact, 70% of the funding is at this stage. And last year there were more than 80 eight zero unique investors that came in, which is exciting because it means that these companies have capital available to them, they're gonna grow quickly, and what you'll find is that as they prove out their concept, deliver some profitability or get at least close to profitability, that that will allow them to be more successful and potentially what'll happen is some of the corporates will invest in them. On the next slide here, I list a, a um, 
I list the most recent active investors in the construction technology space, but this changes all the time, so it's important to take a look at it. Um, just Google or contact me anytime you want to get an updated list if you want an introduction or to talk to somebody with venture capital funds. One thing that was very interesting to me that's relevant to our industry is that when Fifth Wall out of San Francisco brought their second fund to the market this summer, five of the top 10 national builders invested in the fund. And I thought that was very positive messaging from these executives. The boards allow them to invest in the fund to take that risk. What they're saying is maybe we know that the change needs to come. Maybe we don't have the DNA in our company, but let's invest in some of these funds because if we do, then we're very aware of what the opportunities are. We have a front seat at the table. And as those companies get bigger and buy and build some critical mass, maybe they'll be a strategic partner for us or they would be a company that the home builder could buy out. Now, on the other side of the spectrum is the fact that typically when industries are emerging like this, you have a lot of corporate investment. Corporate investment is different to capital investment. It's um, it's corporations that set up a venture capital fund. So for example, Caterpillar has one, um, Brookfield Ventures, part of the Brookfield Real Estate Conglomerate has one. But overall, there's an opportunity for our industry to get much bigger because most corporates have about 20% of uh, investing in this, in this way. And in our industry, it's only 12%. So I do think that's going to continue to increase. It's going to start with investments into these funds. But then as that as these companies become bigger, you'll see some of the corporates invest in them directly. And actually, Louisiana Pacific's investment last year in Integra is a good example of this. So Louisiana Pacific is a member of the Alliance, is a global wood products company through a new CEO and leadership over the last couple of years. They've pivoted their strategy to be more of a solution oriented company than a products oriented company. They knew the, uh, the executive team at Integra, two brothers who were part of the business that their father had started in Europe. The brothers came over here a couple of years ago, opened a factory in Northern California. It's not, it didn't have any revenue at the time and it's not uh, forecasted to be profitable for a couple of years, but LP really saw the opportunity, decided to invest in it. And that was a transaction that my team and I were uh, very honored to work on together. In terms of what needs to change, I wanted to just reference a couple of data points. One is that I think the benefit of the Alliance for me is all of the opportunities we get to communicate with each other, all going to the meetings, going on the tours. So many of the members are generous with their time and their perspective, inviting us into their job sites, into their factories. And the real benefit for me in doing that is that you can read a lot about it, but when you actually go out and talk to people who are doing it and you just take a step back when some of these conferences, you think, wow, I would never have thought of that. And that's the benefit of the uh, introductions that are being facilitated through the Alliance. And I think that's what we need to do because the thing about it is that in the air industry, even though the disruption is coming and it's coming slowly, the real beauty of a, a slow adoption rate is that the first movers have a great advantage. They can really secure critical mass with their customers and strong relationships before anybody catches up with them. So if you have an idea, I recommend that you become a part of the Alliance, come to the events, contribute and participate, and we're all there to help each other. And just to wrap up, in terms of the key to success, I don't think 
a lot of what we're doing, as I said earlier, is particularly disruptive or innovative. We like to think about it because it is for us, but it has been done in most countries already. But ways to really be successful are to bring talent in from outside of the industry. Some of the companies in the Alliance have done that very successfully. To plan for long-term change, knowing that change is really hard, it's going to be difficult, so you have to have a long-term vision. Try to have a solution that's fully integrated, both um, on-site and off-site, partner with customers, partner with vendors, collaborate and focus on continuous improvement versus trying to be perfect from the beginning. And of course, in my line of business, don't run out of capital. So plan for the worst versus the best because everything takes to take, tends to take longer and cost more to execute on. Okay, great. Thanks, Margaret. Just before we switch over to Chris, quick question for you. So if, if someone in our audience wanted to reach out to you, what's your sweet spot? for supporting the deal-making side of these transactions? Yes, so we tend to work with companies that have about a, a $10 billion EBITDA base. Usually it's about a 10% margin on 100 million or so in sales. It's around that level. We know the venture capital firms, so we don't have as big a Rolodex there as we do with the traditional PE and corporate investors. But in the event that there was someone on the call that's looking for capital, they can always contact me. And if it's not an introduction that I can make, make personally or a transaction I can represent, then I can make an introduction to somebody in the, in the venture capital world advisory side who might be able to do that. Question um, for you: um, What do you look at? So you mentioned the size of deals you work on, um, and Chris has got different aspects of what's hot in terms of active segments. What are the types of deals, or what are the things, the areas of innovation that you're most interested in working with people on getting funding for? Uh, it's around the construction technology side, so it's. Uh, primarily factory-oriented um, construction technology companies that are taking pain out of the system, and much less so software-oriented or AI-oriented prop tech companies that are in a, in a different phase of the cycle. Now, what got you into that space in particular? Construction technology? I love factories. and. Um, I grew up in Dublin, Ireland and moved to the U.S. in 1994, so I'm 47, I've got four children, and as my siblings and my friends were getting married and starting families at home, they would call me and say, oh, we found this great house and this new development, we're moving in in 30 days, and I'd say, 30 days? How's that going to happen? And then I was going over, I go home a couple of times a year, and I was seeing that they were actually doing this, and that was how I got familiar with the Integra team and their former company, Century Homes in Ireland. And, um, and what I realized is that when I started my career in 1994 working with home builders, that they did actually quote delivery times and days. So, for example, NVR would say we're delivering these houses in 45 or 50 days. And now, of course, we know it's more than 100 days. So there are not a lot of industries around the world that are decelerating or actually going backwards in terms of productivity the way ours is. And when you drill down on the difference, the fact that the number of days has gone on average from 50 to 100, and you drill down on that, what most of the home builders will tell you is, yes, that's true, but actually the house is vacant for about 50 days. There's nobody working on it. So that is just another cause of frustration. The home builder's capital is being tied up. The consumer is waiting to move, paying rent. And why not be more efficient? And I think so much of that happens in the, uh, in the framing. So, for example, with Integra, they build every house twice. First in 3D in, uh, in 
in software on a computer. They rationalize a plan, remove any waste, and then in the factory or on the job site, the kit from the factories install via crane in a couple of days or hours versus in weeks. And I think it's just the opportunity to get the house weatherproof more quickly. The, the level of precision is so much higher. And as all of that comes together, you just take that many days out of the cycle. And don't forget the fact that What's really depressing for me is when you go to any job site in the U.S., there's a big uh, dumpster outside every single house and 30% of the materials from that house end up in the dumpster. In Europe, you can't have a dumpster. If you even have a trash can on site, you get fined. So who's paying for the 30% of the materials? It's got to be the consumer because the builder's margins are going up. So it's just the fact that as an industry, we've been lazy and stale and we need to make some of these improvements. And for me, I see, <laughs> I see in construction is the biggest opportunity because it's the biggest part of the cost. Yeah, thank, thanks, Chris. Appreciate you understanding. All right, Alan, we'll, uh, we'll jump over to you and uh, let you walk through uh, Rhea and, and your perspective as an investor and working with strategics. And, uh, and then we'll open the conversation up to Q&A from across the community. Thanks, Dennis. Delighted to participate. Margaret, good to hear your voice again. I think I've known you since you arrived in this country. Um, I'll echo what the other two speakers said. Um, a lot of the catalyst for investment clearly is focused on affordability and productivity, and underlying that is uh, a shortage of skilled labor. Um, and it's putting a lot of pressure, as Margaret highlighted, on returns and margins and carrying costs uh, up and down the, the spectrum. Um, so the, if I, I'm going to go, I'm going to use RIA as an example. Um, maybe go to the next slide, Dennis. We, we wanted to create a very simple, go back one. That's it. So a little context around RIA, it's a disruptive HVAC technology um, that uses small diameter ducts. I won't get into the, all the technology of it, but the tagline, which is gonna be relative to um, the conversation we're gonna have is a better HVAC system that's simpler to design, easier to specify and faster to install. Go to the next slide. So when we thought about convincing investors to support RIA, um, and I'd argue that these three key elements are, are the three legs of the stool of any um, innovation investment, a product solution that solves systemic industry-wide problems. Some of the things Margaret talked about, some of her charts um, speak to this exact dynamic. Does the solution you have solve something that's broad industry-based? Um, in our case, it's, it's, it spans some continents, but specifically to the US, um, it has to solve a large problem. Is that market opportunity, is it large and easy to understand? Um, for us, it was. It's about a $3 billion marketplace. Um, very easy for investors to understand it. Uh, one slide explains it. Uh, and lastly, um, a leadership leadership and a team that is respected and capable of executing the business plan. So to put it together, you have a product that solves a problem, a market opportunity that is large and easy to understand that you can profitably serve, and a team that can execute on a plan. If you have any two of these without the third, it doesn't work. You can have a great leadership team and a really good market opportunity, but if a product that you can't convince people is going to be productive, you don't have anything. Equally true, you can have a great product and a great market, but if you can't convince investors that the team has got the, the capability to execute, they're not going to invest. And I'd argue in any of these scenarios, 
um, and Margaret could probably speak to this in the question, Q and A part. These three simple elements have to be in play. Um, next slide. So the other would be, if you're thinking about your elevator speech to convince, setting some context and in, in something that's relatable. So, in in this context. Um, PECs had gone before us and, and over a period of time and created massive market share. And it has technical similarities in terms of manifolds and quick fit solutions and, and labor efficiency. Using this as an example helped non-technical investors relate to it. They could say, yeah, I've seen that in the house or it's in my home. Um, and its attributes and its, and its structure and market share um, were very relatable. I'd add to that that you know a lot of my conversations with investors start with a CEO, um, quickly transitions to their CFO, then to their general counsel, and ultimately to their technical people. So as you think about your messaging, it's on that ladder of, of, of uh, skill and awareness. I talked to a lot of CEOs who are not construction people, so that you have to have a simple enough message that relates well to them. When you get to the technical people, um, they've got really detailed questions. So having that team capable of carrying that message from the highest levels to the folks that are going to put you through technical due diligence is critical. And again, the taglines keep reinforcing the messaging better. Plumbing system, the simpler to design, easier to specify, faster to install. And that, that relatability to our messaging uh, off the backs of a proven effort that came earlier was critical. Next. I'm not going to dwell on this, but it, it, there's only 17 stock keeping parts in the whole system. And even the CEO level, folks could say, well, that's really simple. And we could explain to them, that depending on the contractor, there's 2,500 to 5,000 SKUs in, in the current system. They're smart enough folks to get at the cash tied up in inventory and the difficulty of training trades to work with 5,000 different parts versus 17. Um, so this was a a slide we use often to make the, the simplified statement uh, resonate with people. Next. We had performance data from a test home. Um, so this wasn't a theoretical. Um, we were able to describe to people what the old system did or what the new system did and the comfort that came from it and the effect on consumers and customer callbacks. So using data and not a lot of it, but few words, lots of charts, um, and again, you're trying to fit this into 10 or 15 minutes um, and have it resonate with people. Um, Third-party data uh, is critical. Next. And lastly, how do you close with um, the tieback to the solution and problem? So in our case, um, and for this group, it's probably relevant. So we're taking 25 to 50% of the um, labor out of uh, the install. A lot less SKUs, um, a lot lower skill level to install it, and the whole system's installed with a wire cutter, a drill, and a utility knife. Um, last mile logistics, a lot simpler, one pallet, easier to kit. Um, it works with anybody's equipment, so if you have a national contract with Lennox, it's not going to interfere. We're not saying you have to use carrier or train, you can use anybody. Um, it meets the energy efficiency requirements. Margaret talked about the code changes in California. They're overbearing. You know, on one hand, we're talking about affordability and the other issue, putting codes in place to drive up the cost of a home, five to $10,000. So we have an angle there where it's much more energy efficient. Um, higher performance um, and a lot easier to design. So 
Again, these slides are attempting to capture a broad audience you're gonna to talk to over the course of raising capital from the initial call to the CFO to closing on the technical and legal folks. Um, giving them exam examples they can relate to, simply stating your value proposition, the problem you're solving and the value you're creating. Um, so next slide. So what we set out to do is a seed round of investing and Given my background, I know a lot of the C-level folks in the industry, and we engaged in, and successfully had eight of the largest builders in the country investing uh, in the seed round of investing. And then we have low 30s individual investors, and they range from hedge fund founders who have uh, built rapport with over the years and sold businesses for, to the former COO of Pulte, to the former chairman of the board at, at Taylor Morrison, uh, and everything in between, the largest carrier distributor in, in Pittsburgh. And in, at the outset of this is how do you get the strategics to invest and help make a market, which in our case, the builders clearly will. Um, in the five years that we wrote the Performa, um, the builders will build a million homes that are investors, which obviously is a huge implied uh, customer base. And then we wanted a diverse group of investors um, as a part of a, a, a testament that it's a well-rounded solution, whether you're a carrier, distributor, a professional investor, or a career construction executive. Um, all those added up to a, a fact set and an endorsement of the technology of the management team in the marketplace um, that would be successful. So that's, that's, that's the overview, Dennis. Hopefully it's hitting the point you you're wanted me to make. Um, but a, a word of encouragement for the folks on the phone to piggyback on what the other two speakers said. Um, the industry's at an in interesting point. These structural issues are, are long-term and systemic with labor and productivity loss, as Margaret highlighted. Um, this group on the phone, it, and I would say the industry at large, um, if we don't develop some curiosity um, on how to improve our industry and its productivity and our cost structure, um, if we don't engage uh, in these activities and have that courage and conviction to take risk greater than we have in the past, um, I don't know how these charts from McKinsey change over time. Either we're going to be a, a moderate growing to declining industry if we don't solve these productivity gains. And there is the potential, the separation of those who do it and those who don't. Um, but those on the phone, I'd encourage you to, to actively engage um, in this activity and encourage your companies to make these seed round investments, um, take some risk, provide capital, uh, human and cash capital support uh, to get them to market. That's it. All right. No, that, that was that was right on, Alan. Thanks. You hit all the, you know, you hit the kind of the key points we wanted to communicate to our to our community and to the industry abroad. Um, now we're going to open it up to any questions that we have from our, our community. Okay, and then uh, I know you have some questions on your end too. There are two questions in here. Um, since Alan's still unmuted, we'll take the Alan question first and then we'll take the Margaret question. Um, and if you, you can either put it on chat to us or you can submit it through the Q&A field. Um, however is easiest for you, I'm watching both of those. Um, but the question that came in for Alan is, looking back on your initial capital raise, what messages resonated most and least? And is there anything that you would do differently? So it's a three, three-parter. Yeah. I think on the, 
the most, what resonated the most was, um, and timing certainly helped. The leading builders of America are attacking the, the labor issue through a foundation and a, a concentrated 10-year strategy. And the CEOs are actively involved in that. And we, we were able to turn that message around and say, I'm all for supporting a systemic change in, in how we recruit young people to the industry. But in the very near term, how do we take one vertical trade activity and, and accomplish the mission of a simpler to install, easier to teach and train, and fewer man hours in total to, to install? And that resonated with them. They said, yeah, we've got a plan for the long term, but this fits the criteria. Um, and it's something that's narrow enough and focused in one trade activity that, that they could get behind. I'd say the second thing, the building codes are changing um, and have been for decades. And I, I actually was surprised by the awareness that the, the uh, technical folks in the building, the public builders, uh, and they were already moving down this path, um, is the, have the notion of having ducks and attics and air handlers and attics, um, not only is it bad building science, but it's bad building practice. And the codes are, are, are going to force them out of attics in the next 10 years. And, and that message, they were already thinking about it and us bringing it up certainly spiked that interest. Um, the third was in the Southern climates, hot humid climates, there's been some really big failures with mold and moisture in attics with ducks. Um, and if you were a builder who'd been affected by that, you were already thinking around technologies to get away from it. Um, and there wasn't a, another good solution that, that was available. So that those three things really fit the framework of, of what they were thinking. Probably what they were less interested in, um, for example, would be um, inventory management for a contractor. They kind of shrugged their shoulders and say, well, that's interesting. It's hard for them to connect the cost of that contractor's business to their first cost and total cost of contracting with an HVAC contractor. However, when we get to the end user, the contractor customer in this, it's, it is the first thing they get to because it's making their business very difficult to execute. Um, but for the investor, it was less, it didn't resonate with them as well. Um, if I had to do it over again, um, there's some things that um, we spent a lot of time on a long, a very long-winded business plan that while it was helpful for us to have to go through that process, I'm not sure anybody read it. Um, and it took up a lot of our time. Um, and we had hoped for better engagement with it, but really didn't get it. Um, so I'd probably not do that again. Um, I think we chased a few rabbit holes with folks that um, feigned interest early. Um, and there were maybe peripheral strategics in and around the building products, um, I probably wouldn't do that again. Uh, I, I narrow down the, the number of people we were recruiting um, and focus on the, those who showed some genuine interest and stay with them. Um, that'd be the two big things. Perfect, great. Well, I'm gonna um, switch over to um, the question for Margaret that came through. Um, and it was funny this came through because I was thinking about it right when you said it. You were talking about Katera. Um, and as many of us have seen the latest news with Katera closing the plant in Arizona and moving operations to California um, and all of the other stuff that's going around in that realm, 
Um, would love to get your perspective on the true impact of Katera's come up and on the atmosphere for investors. A lot of us on the Katera tour, so we did a tour at Katera a couple years ago um, as one of our part of our roundtable, live roundtable events on offsite construction. So people on the tour thought that either this was really the future or the emperor had no clothes. <laughs> they were biting off way more than anyone could chew reasonably. Um, the reality is that most innovations are not so broad and huge and don't have the complexity risk of Katera. Does the investment community understand this differentiation or is there a real headline risk for slowing down investment? And well, that's a long question and I'm assuming it's not a plug from the Katera team who might be on the call. Um, Look, the reality is that I, w I was on the tour. I've been out to Phoenix. They have a, a, a fantastic new factory in Northern California now as well. And they're pivoting. They're recognizing that there are bigger opportunities elsewhere in the country, and they're going after that. The cost to build is much more expensive in California than in um, Phoenix, which we all know. And so I think it's good to admit mistakes and to move on. I think it's good to kill bad decisions uh, to fail fast versus later dragging things out. I, I don't know what's going on there on a day-to-day -day basis, but there's a huge amount of capital available. They continue to invest. I think, as I said, in terms of the strategies for success, collaborating with people inside the industry, outside of the industry, um, with customers, with suppliers, and not running out of capital. I think they have all of the tools that they need to be very successful, and we're watching them. As an industry, we need them to succeed, and I have uh, every confidence that they will, but it's a bumpy road, and since we are in an industry where most people don't take any risk, I don't think we should be criticizing them for trying harder. Okay. Cool. Very good. Any other questions from the community? All right. Um, while we're getting collecting additional questions from the community, just wanted to throw a few things over to you. Um, and this is for all three of our panelists. Um, we're seeing a number of industry outsiders and foreign investors entering the U.S. housing market. Just curious who you think are the interesting non-traditional players that are participating and, and if you could also tell us where they're investing. I wonder who's the question referring to. If they're saying non-traditional, I assume it's not the Japanese real estate companies? Not the Canadian. Well, basically, yeah. not not the Canadian. It could be the foreign It could be the foreign investors outside of North America. Let's say. Yeah. So, like the, but it said non-traditional because I would say that the Japanese real estate companies are traditional, but just uh, not in the U.S. But they have been incredibly successful uh, formulating strategies here in the U.S. There's three or four of them that are very active, buying both home builders and building products and construction companies. And I think that they will continue to do so because they have a very long-term outlook when it comes to investing capital. They think decades versus years. And they have negative growth at home in Japan, so their capital is well-placed out here. There's, uh, even though there's more risks here, there's also much more upside. Okay. Um, we have a question um, from someone who is a health IT consultant turned next generation home enthusiast. Um, working on a prototype to redefine real estate investment by eliminating um, entry barrier and concept of inhabiting your property for a micro investor. Not sure if I'm reading this properly. Uh, my question is, do you see the need to tackle this issue of housing from a community perspective 
rather than single family homes? And do you see any link to um, population health management in this conversation? I'm trying to see, do you understand? Any clarification on your end, Dennis? I don't have the question in front of me. But I, I, I think if I understand it correctly, it's if you were to look at um, multifamily housing situations and providing health care as a central point of access within these communities, is that uh, as, a way to, as a way to provide health care to all and help create a more affordable lifestyle situation? So I'm looking at a bundling of services, perhaps. So is that an attractive, perhaps, um, uh, is that an attractive opportunity from an investment standpoint? And we might have some. Yep. Might be a good question for Alan. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I almost interpreted the question differently to some of the things going on in California with allowing two single homes on um, a single family lot. And some of the things like Mighty Build Margaret that are working on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the yeah, excess, excess redwelling units, the ADUs. Yeah, and, and I akin that to um, Toronto, where I grew up, where it was very common practice to finish your basement and rent it out, which at the time was legal non conforming, and now it is conforming. So it's a little bit of how do you take advantage of existing infrastructure um, now. Is if there's an investment vehicle there, I'm not quite sure what it would be other than the productivity solutions like a mighty build uh, where they're creating robotic um, productivity to put little 600 square foot granny flats on in the backyards of existing single family homes. But um, I don't know whether that is addressing the question. I, I think this aging population and their housing needs and affordability and healthcare, there's clearly integration there. Um, I'm not spending a lot of time thinking about the investment side. Okay, that's fair. I think that's a good good question we can throw over to Chris. Yeah. And an email follow up and uh, get his feedback for the community that as well. that question. Yep, absolutely. Um, okay, uh, just a couple other questions here then. So picking, you know, Alan, you talked a bit about picking the right strategic investors and how that can be critical for the success of your idea. I'd be interested to get some thoughts from from both you and Margaret, are there any, let's say, untapped resources in the strategics that are out there? Are there players that haven't been very active in helping to finance these new finance and formalize these ideas and concepts that could be that could potentially be more become more active in the industry? Well, I hope the answer is all of them because none of them have been very active. Some of them are setting up their own venture capital funds, as we mentioned, Brookfield Ventures, Ferguson Ventures. Um, Others are investing in the funds. The boards of these companies need to be looking at um, what's around the corner and they need to be looking straight out the windscreen, not in the rearview mirror. And I think as they start to do that, they will enable folks like Alan to start a business and to take risks, whether it's at Alan's level or Katera's level, that they'll finance that or that they'll create a strategic partnership to facilitate the success of those entities because we'll all benefit from it. But is there one in particular? No, not that I can name, because it's basically all of them. Yeah, I, okay. I would agree. I, I think some have been a little more active. I think Lenar's been a little more active than not. Um, but um, I think all of them, it, it was a lot of hard work for me to pry a few hundred thousand bucks out of each one of them. 
Um, it's just not natural for them. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Yeah, to invest. I think with the passing, when Bill Pulte left Pulte, uh, I think that he was the last true innovator who would spend 20 or $30 million a year in R&D and try advanced things. Not all of them worked, and that's innovation for you. Um, but it's painful, and it's unfortunate because um, – I think, as I've often said, if you added up the R&D budgets of the top 20 builders, you could put it into a thin <laughs> And the producti productivity reflects that. Um, now, the lack of productivity. Yeah. And, and so I think either they're going to wake up or they're going to just end up not addressing the affordability because none of us who are innovating um, are going to do this for free, right? Um, the other the other real opportunity is they can help make a market for these products and have a financial return for their investment. Um, so it's, it's kind of get a, a solution that affects their, their operations. It provides cost relief and productivity gains and the chance to make a return on the investment they make and, and support that through adoption. So I see it really compelling. Um, and I think it's going to take a little time and a couple of successes before they fully engage. Yeah, you know what I might add to that, Alan, is that um, in the last decade, if you look at some of the John Burns research, in the last decade, new home sales have been losing share to existing home sales. I think it's lower. New home sales as a percent of the total is lower than it's ever been before. And more recently, we've seen this new industry and asset class emerge, which is single-family rental rentals. And the Burns team put out a new report this month where they estimate that about a third of the new houses that those rental operators are renting out are brand new. They're specifically built for the rental market. So it's possible that the consumer will reject the product because I used the analogy earlier about how these millennial customers are very sophisticated. They want to buy the iPhone 10. We're offering them the Blackberry and they say, you know, I'll just stay in this multifamily apartment or I'll stay living in my parents' basement until I really see a product that's appealing to me and they'll wait for something. And that in and of itself will cause atrophy in the industry because we'll be losing market share and home builders need scale and velocity to stay profitable. Yeah, I would completely agree. Um, I, I think it's that marketplace, there's a, there is a segment of that buyer group that will, um, or renter group that will move from the apartment to what I would call a pretty basic home. But I think there's a, to your point, Margaret, there's a hole in the market for providing a more attractive solution or a more compelling solution. Um, but I'm not sure I've seen a lot of people address it. Well, we've got one more question in the queue. Um, from a timing perspective, we're on track uh, to respect everyone's schedule. So we'll pose this last question. But anyone who's on the phone, if you have an additional question you haven't posed yet, um, either post it right now to us. Uh, we'll keep track of those and, and get back to you after the event. Um, or just shoot an email to someone on our team. We're happy to facilitate getting those answers for you as well. Um, and one more thing related to this before this last question, so we'll do the recording with Chris and get that to you. Um, one thing that we'd like you to answer for us is if, um, obviously this is a very interesting topic to people, there's a lot of good participants today. So I would love to know, um, as we're planning for programming related to finance for next year, because it seems to be of, of interest to a lot of folks, what would you like to get out of it from us? So I'm just going to give you that open-ended question and we'll follow up with you by email on that front as well um, because that will help 
steer who we talk to and what other um, resources we offer you in this vein um, in 2020. So um, that being said, so the last uh, question slash statement um, uh -oh. says, uh, literally Okay, the last one says, Rayco, Fox, and Jacobs, and Devosta were highly successful with vertically, vertically integrated supply chains and manufacturing plants in part due to a critical mass of volume in a smaller geographic area. NVR is somewhat restricted on radius to warehouse two. Uh, what innovations do you see that aren't limited by a delivery radius? And note, Alan, your company would be one example. <laughs> you know, I was intimately involved with uh, Devosta in pulpy building systems and Pratt developments, and and there there absolutely is a, and I'd say Integra's is in the same bucket. There's just a shipping um, and logistics um, range that they can serve, as you mentioned with NDR. Um, I think that the supply chain innovations that I'm hearing percolating um, are really around last mile logistics and potential trade integration. So if you could kit and deliver the electrical, the plumbing and the HVAC, um, and you could cross train trades, you could take what's taking eight or nine days down to one or two, which is exactly what DeVosta did. Um, that requires some um, the BIM technology certainly enables that um, at scale, but until the builders get a little bit of discipline around the variation in their, in their floor plans and elevations and options, that, that's a big ask. But the possibility um, for certain segments, entry level or build to rent, to attack the supply chain and the last mile logistics, it's a, it's a hidden cost. If you ever stood on a job site for a week and kept tally of the less than full truckloads that come in and out of that community, it is staggering. So there's thousands of dollars tied up in last mile logistics, labor inefficiency, and I've heard a lot of people talking about this kind of the rise of the super trade um, that's attached to a kitting and last mile logistics solution. And that would be infinitely scalable. You know, you could serve a market out of one warehouse in Phoenix, um, the whole market. Um, but that, that's the one that comes to mind. Um, but to pull this off requires a lot of um, discipline at the executive level within the building companies. Um, the companies mentioned, referenced all had limited sets of floor plans and, and options. And that's part of how this is going to have to unfold. Okay, great. Well, thank you both very much for um, for participating today, and uh, thanks to Chris. Even though we had some technical difficulties, we will um, circle back with him again. Um, can you advance the slide mm -hmm. for whatever reason? It doesn't like me right now. Um, just for the last two minutes, or maybe if you can hang on for two minutes after, um, just wanted to give you guys a sense of some other resources coming out, programming coming up for the Alliance. Um, we like to look at big issues like um, off-site construction, like attainability um, from a broader sense um, and try and uh, create individual opportunities like this uh, virtual roundtable, but also try and create that larger thread looking at why it's an issue, what's happening, how to tackle it, 
um, who's doing a great job, what the investment is that's involved, the wins and the risks. And what we call those are roadmaps. Uh, we've got two coming out shortly in their 1.0 versions. One is on attainability in U.S. housing. So a lot of that has been related to the live roundtable that we had um, in Denver uh, in last month, um, as well as building information modeling in U.S. housing using technology on that front. So look for emails and social media posts on our accounts for that shortly um, and access to resources on that front. Um, there's a new resource in our What's New section right now with its own little tab if you click on What's New. Um, as a response to people who are interested in off-site construction wanting to know where potential partners are, um, we've worked to develop, this is the beta version of an off-site heat map. And you can see those little things at the bottom of the screen. You can toggle off and on um, those boxes to see who offers components and both manufactures and installs them, who does kitchen and bath pods, et cetera. This is a live breathing tool, and there's actually a plus sign on the tool. So if you know of a company we don't have listed or you are a company we don't have listed, you can actually add yourself. Um, so that's a new resource that's available. Love to check that out. Have any feedback, let us know. Next. Um, and then we'll send this to you as well. This just shows you some of the stuff that we've got going on starting in Q1 of next year. Um, what the PDCs are is as we're developing new resources, it's where you can tell us what you want it to look like, how you want it to feel, what would be valuable to you. Uh, VRTs are, are our webinars, so it's more opportunities like this, some of which are live, some of which are on demand. Um, and then you don't see this on screen here. Um, well, actually, you see the IBF breakfast here, but we also have this summit coming up uh, which is our big annual event in April. Um, at IBS, Dennis and I will be there. Uh, Dave Cooper, who does some video on his own, as well as connected to the Alliance, is also going to be there doing video. And Stacy Freed, who's working with us on the Attainability Roadmap and some other resources, will be there as well. Love to meet with you one-on-one. -on -one. Um, Michael Dickens, our co-chair, or our vice chair, I'm sorry, is uh, hosting a builder innovation related panel discussion. We may also be hosting one related to offsite construction at the event. Um, and if you are available for breakfast, uh, we have one date set so far, uh, Wednesday, January 22nd at 7 a.m. That's filling up quickly. Shoot me an email if you're interested, I'll send you some info. Um, and if there's enough interest, we may do it on Thursday as well. And then finally, make sure you save the date for this event. This is our Innovation Summit. We're excited to go to Nashville. I've never been there uh, for more than just a fly through. Um, so I think it'll be fun and there's a lot of interesting tours that we'll see. Um, so that's a two and a half day event um, set for April. And then if you're not a member of our community or a partner in our community yet, um, we're looking for, always looking for more smart people from cool companies. So uh, Natalie will make sure as we're sending the follow-up information to you that there are links um, to information on membership as well. But thank you all for your time. Thanks, Dennis, for hosting. Um, Margaret and Alan and Chris um, for insights from you today. And all of you for your time. And uh, if we don't chat with you soon, have a wonderful rest of your holiday season. And we hope to see you uh, next year at IBS. Thanks so much.